Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, why has polio reappeared in some major cities? The virus that causes polio has been found in a concerning number of sewage samples in London, New York, and in Jerusalem. Officials in the US believe there may be hundreds of cases and that the disease is silently spreading through communities. Their suspicion is that low rates of vaccination in particular areas may be driving transmission. Here in Ireland, uptake of the polio vaccine, which is given as part of the early childhood six in one jab, has also been declining in recent years. In 2021, uptake was 87%. But so far, there haven't been any similar discoveries in our wastewater. So what exactly do the findings in these three major cities tell us? And how worried should we be? To shed some light on the issue, I'm joined by Dr. Kathleen O'Reilly, epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Kathleen, you're very welcome. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Now, I want to start with the basics before we get into what's been happening recently. Can you explain what is polio and what are the symptoms associated with it? So polio is a is a disease caused by a virus, um, and the symptoms that we so often associate with polio is paralysis, so typically paralysis in, in the legs and in the arms, and so, you know, we might have seen photographs, especially from low-income countries in recent years, of children who you know aren't able to walk without support. It, it is a virus that does cause a, a a number of sort of outcomes, but that that's sort of the the most serious. Um, but but sometimes it, it does also cause death. But I think the thing that I want to emphasise is that a majority of in infections from this polio virus are, are asymptomatic, as in you would not be aware that you are infected. It's only a very small number of infections, so about one in a thousand to one in two thousand that can result in this serious paralysis. So that means that most people who would have it may not even really realise Yes, that, that is true. But I think that uh, certainly for your listeners in Ireland, it, it, it's worth bearing in mind that Ireland is, is free from polio virus. Um, the virus was, was eliminated from, from Ireland decades ago. So, so the, the chances of being um, infected with this virus is extremely low. And of course, if you are up to date with your, your vaccines, because we've got a very safe and effective vaccine, that there would be a very, very low chance that you would be affected by this virus. So can you talk us through how it spreads then? It, it's quite a pernicious virus. It, it's it's very capable of spreading. So there's a number of ways that it spreads. But um, the most common way that poliovirus spreads, and this is especially true in, in low-income countries, is, is faecal-oral transmission, or that, that's how epidemiologists like to refer to it as. Um, so it's just you know people not washing their hands and poor hygiene when you're going to the toilet, that sort of thing. And it's one of the reasons why individuals most commonly affected are those under the age of five because you know just five-year-olds being five-year-olds really but but in some um, settings oral transmission is also a possibility but again this requires close contact between individuals to, to pass on poliovirus in this way. And what kinds of treatments do we have for those more severe cases that you referenced? Well, I mean, I guess the thing that I want to emphasise is that better than treatment, we've got prevention. Prevention is always better than treatment. So we've got a very safe and effective vaccine. Um, but for those individuals that are unfortunately affected by this paralysis, um, physiotherapy, 
is, is one of the main ways to help support individuals that have been affected by this virus. And so this is sort of in the acute phase. So when individuals have been affected quite recently, one of the things that we are also quite aware of, and this is especially true for individuals that were affected back in the 50s and 60s who are you know, a bit older now, their illness develops again later in life. So it's um, sort of post-polio syndrome is what we call it. And this is where individuals who were affected when they were younger, they, they've led a very healthy life. They, their physiotherapy back in the day has been highly effective, but then they might go on to develop muscle weakness and extreme tiredness. And, and this, this is actually a lot of support is needed, but it, it's a very sort of multifactorial support system where yeah, physiotherapy and support of individuals so that they can try and lead as healthy life as possible in their later years. So it's it's quite a complicated thing to treat, I think it's fair to say. And and it's it's something that I think individuals do find challenging, especially later on in life. Yeah. And then in terms of prevention, there is a vaccine, obviously. When was it first developed and how effective has it been? The history of polio vaccination is, is, is a fascinating thing in itself, but to summarise it very briefly, we, we have two key vaccines. The first vaccine that is in use in, in Ireland and most other Western countries um, is called the inactivated polio vaccine. And so this was de- developed by um, Jonas Salk uh, in the early 1950s. And one of the reasons why this vaccine is used, um, it's an injected vaccine and it it consists of um, sort of particles which your immune system is able to respond to. And it's highly effective against preventing paralysis. And so it it has been highly effective um, in terms of elimination in many high income countries. And and so this is the vaccine of choice in most high income countries because of its um, high safety effects. The other vaccine that is used in most sort of low-income countries and places where there's um, sort of issues with sanitation and hygiene um, is the oral polio vaccine. So, so this is the vaccine that's sort of used to eradicate polio in places such as Pakistan and Afghanistan, where it's still going on. And, and this vaccine is used because it's a um, it's a weakened version of the virus. And the reason for this vaccine being preferable in in some other settings is that it's very effective against preventing both paralysis, but also against preventing transmission in circumstances where you know that you have virus circulating in the area and it's really important to to eliminate the virus and to um, have elimination and hopefully leading to eradication. You really need to stop transmission. And so this is one of the reasons why this oral polio vaccine is in use in these areas. So it's a bit of a complicated mixture in in terms of, you know, there are many vaccines available to combat this virus. We've spoken a bit about vaccination rates in low income countries, but what are rates like generally in high income countries? Yeah, they do vary a lot. I I think it's fair to say. So um, routine immunisation and um, part of the expanded program of immunization um, has gone hand in hand with polio eradication. So certainly since the 1980s or the late 1980s, when countries of the world um, committed to polio eradication, one of the things that um, countries wanted to do alongside polio eradication was also improve other vaccines such as measles, mumps, rubella and um, uh, diphtheria and pertussis, for example. 
And so since then, the proportion of children immunised against polio and other vaccines really has improved. And I, I want to say globally, the average is is in about the 80 to 90% range. But for for eradicating polio, that isn't really enough. So part of the polio eradication initiative is well, continuing to support routine immunisation, but also carrying out mass immunisation campaigns in um, at-risk countries. And so the mass immunisation campaigns in combination with routine immunisation has really improved um, vaccination coverage in, in most countries specifically against polio, so that it's it's sort of ha- much higher, so in the sort of 80 to 90%. And, and that's one of the reasons why we've been able to eliminate wild polio virus, for example, from the African continent. And and we, we just have polio virus or wild polio virus present in Afghanistan and Pakistan now. And I mentioned in my introduction that in Ireland, polio vaccine uptake has been dropping in recent years. Is that a trend in many other countries? I think yes. Um, the, the data during the COVID pandemic, had, you know, it, it's difficult to collate data in a way because epidemiologists have been working so hard to combat so many different things. But I think the general trend has been a, a at least a small reduction in routine immunisation in, in certainly most Western countries and, um, and of course, in, in most low-income countries as well. There's a number of reasons for this. And you know, some of this has been not being able to, or you know, people feeling like they haven't been able to visit their GP to for their children to have... Um, things such as polio vaccination but with this sort of you know living with covid strategy that most countries are now committing to it it's very important to catch up on these routine immunizations so what do you make then of ireland's polio vaccination rates it's 87 percent was the uptake in 2021 are we vulnerable it's difficult to know. I mean, 86%, it's not ideal. I think most most high-income countries do aim for, you know, in the high 90s. So I think given that it, polio vaccination in Ireland has, has been higher in the past, there's clearly a need to perform some sorts of catch-up. And, you know, most of this is going to be about just it, it not being a, a priority for families initially, you know, this is where um, GPs need to be able to ensure that catching up in, in recent years will be really critical. And and things such as the preschool booster as well, that's another opportunity to engage with people about their vaccination. So there's, you know, yeah, th- th- there's room for improvement there, I think it's fair to say. And so polio has been detected in the wastewater of New York, London and Jerusalem. How unexpected was this? On the one hand, it's not that unexpected in terms of, you know, the the UK and especially London and New York. You know, all these these cities are they're very international cities, and certainly, you know, with my experience as um, an epidemiologist that's been working on poliovirus for for well over ten years now, I know that it's present in other countries. You know, there's. Um, polio still, as I say, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and there's there's um, been um, sort of international spread elsewhere. So, so on the one hand, it, it doesn't expect me that it was detected. I think what I have been quite surprised by is that it's continued to be detected. Um, so, so this is one of the reasons why I think wastewater surveillance um, is is so key because 
it's an opportunity to detect something and prevent any further you know cases in 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 people you know wastewater is like the canary in the coal mine for polio and many other infectious diseases and it provides us an opportunity to prevent something worse from happening and so so this is sort of why I'm quite supportive of things such as wastewater surveillance. And have they identified any actual cases in these cities? So so I think this is an important question. So um, in, in London, um, there's been no detection of clinical disease in affected individuals. And this is despite some quite um, extensive clinical surveillance in, in London, but also obviously elsewhere in the country. In Jerusalem, again, there's been detections of poliovirus and sewage, but, but again, no clinical disease as yet. In New York, the situation has been slightly different. So there was um, an individual, I think, um, sort of quite a young adult who had reported paralysis, uh, residual paralysis in his limbs. Um, and this was despite having no recent travel history. He's, he's in a, a sort of a Haredi Jewish population. And unfortunately, we know that in this particular population in New York State, vaccination coverage is quite low. So sort of putting these pieces together, it suggests that there might be local transmission in, in the New York State area that unfortunately resulted in this individual um, having clinical disease. There are quite high vaccination rates overall in countries like the US, but is that enough to keep transmission low or can subpopulations like you referenced with low vaccination coverage sustain transmission of the disease? Yeah, so this is one of the things that we're finding out at the moment. So in the UK, as an example, the national immunisation rate for polio is about 92%. And there has, in the in the London area, so in especially in the North London boroughs, vaccination coverage has been at about 86%. Um, and this in combination with London being quite a population-dense city, seems to be indicative that transmission has been sustained at least for sort of a couple of months for poliovirus. And we've seen this in the wastewater. So this is one of the difficult things about poliovirus as a, as a pathogen. It, it's very capable of um, finding susceptible populations and it, it's, it's very capable of sustaining transmission in what might be quite a small population. And so this is why maintaining high vaccination rates, even within small subpopulations, is really quite critical. We've also seen this in, in endemic countries. So even in Pakistan, a vast majority of Pakistan is, is very much free from poliovirus, but there's small pockets where vaccination coverage hasn't been sustained. And this is where the poliovirus seems to hide, waiting for, for more susceptible children to become available. And with that link being made to the low vaccination rates in, in certain groups, is that sort of part of the overall picture? I'm wondering how public health officials can determine that that's a contributing factor. We, we, we know how effective vaccines are in terms of preventing transmission and also preventing paralysis. So a vast majority of, of the global population even is, is immune from poliovirus because a vast majority of individuals have been vaccinated. But what we have learned time and time again um, with the importation and circulation of poliovirus and, and many other pathogens is actually you know it, it, it's able to, to, to sustain 
transmission in a relatively small population. And if people have been reading some recent news coverage around this, they may have seen the term vaccine derived polio. Can you explain what that is and how rare is it? Yeah, so so vaccine derived polio is it's different to the wild virus. So essentially how it comes about is that, um, well, it, it's a polio virus. Um, it starts off as a weakened version of the virus. And this is the, the weakened version of the virus that's used in the oral polio vaccine. And so, so we've known about this um, since, since the oral polio vaccine was, was developed in the 1950s. And when this vaccine is used in a community and only low to moderate coverage is achieved, this allows for spread of this attenuated virus um, in populations. And unfortunately, there's a number of mutations that can happen when it spreads in a, in a susceptible population. If this spread is able to be sustained, um, typically for six months to a year, so it's quite a long time, um, and, and actually for that reason it's quite an unusual development, it can then revert to causing paralysis in infected individuals. So it, it returns to its pathogenic state. So like I say, this um, vaccine-derived poliovirus, it, it's very rare. I think that's the thing to really emphasise, and it's very unusual. It is one of the reasons why we prefer to use IPV in most high-income countries. But unfortunately, you know, we, we still need to use the oral polio vaccine in, in some other countries because it's so important to prevent transmission. So other than the low vaccination rates that we've talked about, are there other potential reasons that polio is being detected now? Yeah, that's a good question and something that's worth thinking about. I think, I think so much of this is about having suboptimal vaccination coverage. I, I think if, for example, if in London we had vaccination rates that were well above 90%, I, I don't think there would be, you know, whilst we might detect some importation of um, the ability for it to transmit in the local population would really be quite minimal. Um, I think one, one of the other things that I should probably just um, also mention is there's been a, the possibility of, of interference between uh, an, another vaccine that has been used in maternal immunisation to um, prevent pertussis. Um, so, so this vaccine has been extremely useful in terms of preventing what pertussis, which is um, whooping cough. And perhaps there's been some interference when the children born to mothers who have been vaccinated, their polio vaccines they receive as infants haven't been quite as effective as they should be, which is one of the reasons why the preschool booster has been so important. Thinking about the relevance of this in the Irish population, actually, it's it's pretty minimal because with the maternal immunisation that is used in Ireland, you actually use a different vaccine. So there's there's very little sort of risk of any any sort of negative consequences um, thinking about the Irish population. And I want to ask you about the public health response in these countries where we've seen it. What actions have been taken? Yeah, I think it's... Um, it's been really fascinating to see um, the activities that have been going on. So certainly in London, actually one of the first actions that was taken was to alert GPs to um, this detection and to ask them to review recent immunisation histories. So essentially sort of catch up immunisation. So 
if mothers and their children are coming into the GP for something else, just a quick check of their records to see whether their polio vaccines and, and other vaccines are also up to date. So I think that's been really valuable. The other aspect is improving uh, wastewater surveillance. So um, the initial detections were in one very large sewage system in North London. And so the next steps have been about looking in more detail in those areas to better understand areas that are affected or, or not. So um, by looking at more geographically distinct areas and looking for the detection of wastewater. Um, the, the other aspect in terms of surveillance has been expanding environmental surveillance to other parts of the country. And more recently, um, the JCVI, so the people who sort of think about vaccines in the UK, have also recommended that there's a, a catch-up booster campaign for all children, at, certainly starting in North London, under 10 years of age, to receive an extra dose of um, the inactivated polio vaccine. So I think these things together, you know, we're better understanding who is at risk and we're also taking preventative action, which I think is really key here. Now, I know epidemiologists don't really like hypotheticals, but I'm going to give you one anyway. What type of impact could polio have on healthcare systems if there was a wider spread? Yeah, I think it is a worthwhile question to be thinking about. And I think it would it would be the very understandable concern of individuals that I think would need to be managed really carefully. So I think, you know, the first thing is assuring people, especially if their vaccinations are up to date, that they probably don't need to worry. But if there are specific sort of clinical sort of telltale signs, then it would be obviously important to contact their GP. Um, so I think it, it, it's managing the concern. And I think one of the things that has really come up is, I think polio really does get to people quite quickly because so many people, even in sort of high income countries, know how serious this disease could be. So I think it, it, it's managing the concern. Whilst we are concerned that there is some indication of transmission, you know, a vast majority of individuals have been vaccinated. So the, you know, the chances of them developing clinical disease is really quite low. So I, I think it, it is very much about managing the situation, but also ensuring that we're able to stop transmission. So obviously the key thing here is going to be about vaccination and what the future for vaccination needs to be in certainly in the UK um, and potentially other high income countries, you know, reviewing um, their current vaccination recommendations, but also reviewing how they're looking for viruses such as poliovirus. And is there a chance we could totally eradicate polio globally? Yes, I do think so. And I think it's more than a chance. I, I think, you know, we've done so much of the work already, you know, in the 1980s, when we first committed to eradication, it's estimated that there were 300,000 cases of poliomyelitis each year. Last year, wild poliomyelitis affected six individuals. So, so we have come so far I think we've got highly safe and effective vaccines and we've got we've learned so much about the virus and how to look for it that we've got the right tools. It, it's this final hurdle in terms of being able to restrict the virus to the last few areas and then really get on top of it. 
And this is where political support, but also financial support is really critical. It's been critical all the way through, but I think perhaps if it's not on people's radars, people don't think about it so much and until it appears right in front of you. So I, I do hope that this this has been a, like a wake up call that polio is still present. But, you know, it also you know illustrates how close we are to eradication. It's just that, you know, it, it's a very finite thing, eradication. It, we've either done it or we haven't. And so far, we haven't quite done it. And, and that's the frustrating thing. Once we've actually achieved eradication, we, we won't need to be thinking about importations from other places. So I think it's really key that we do support it till, till the, the final case is, is detected. And with viruses like this, vaccination is obviously key. How concerned are you about the type of anti-vaccine rhetoric that we've seen in recent years, particularly in relation to COVID? Do you think that we might only know the true impact of that a decade or two down the line? I think sort of vaccine, well, anti-vaccine rhetoric and sort of vaccine hesitancy, it, it's always been with us ever since vaccines have existed. Even with the first smallpox vaccine, there was there was concerns about the vaccines so it, it's it's always something that's going to be there but I think it, it's something where having a conversation with people about it is going to be really key I'm not aware that sort of anti-vaccine sentiment has really driven any of the reductions in um, vaccine coverage um, against polio certainly in high income countries I, I think it, it's it's more about access and, and access is something that affects people across the world you know we, we need to make access to vaccines as easy as possible for people because you know people have a, a bunch of concerns especially for their children and, and you know we, we need to make things as easy as possible to prevent vaccine preventable diseases I, th- I think sort of the anti-vaccine rhetoric around around covid vaccines it, it, it's been very challenging um, but at the same time I think those people, you know, people who are concerned about vaccines, you know, they, they need to reach out to the right people to sort of get the right information. And and I think contacting your GP if you're concerned is absolutely the best thing to do. Um, using social media as a source of information is always going to be really challenging. You know, I I, I wouldn't use social media to figure out how to um, sort out the plumbing in my house because I know that it's not going to be accurate so you know using that logic well why would I use social media to find out about health principles so you know contact an expert and that expert might be your GP it might be a nurse it might just be someone who's like interested in these sort of things and I think it's really valuable to ask the right people the right questions. Well, I have to say it is starting to feel like we're just talking about one virus after another these days. So it's definitely helpful to talk it all through like this. Thanks so much, Kathleen, for chatting to me today. Yeah, and thanks again. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Kathleen for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber Or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.